Brothers and sisters, great to see you today. Uh, would you go ahead and open up your Bibles to the book of First Timothy, chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible with you today, there should be one in a pew rack in front of you. I want to really, really encourage you, even if you're here with us all the time and you just kind of roll without a Bible open, I really want to encourage you to open one up. Uh, it'll be important that you have your eyes on the Word today uh, as we go through our study of a beautiful and challenging passage of Scripture. First Timothy chapter 2, something to write on and something to write with, and your Bible's open, and uh, you get two thumbs up from me today. That'll be good. Uh, it's days like today that you have to love expository preaching, verse by verse through books of the Bible. Preaching, when we preach the Bible this way, it means we can't skirt around difficult passages. Uh, and today we study what might be the most hotly debated passage of Scripture in the New Testament. And the good news is this. Uh, we will answer every question and solve every debate today. Hooray! <laughs> uh, no, we won't. We're going to do our best. We're going to do our best for sure. Uh, but there's a reason this is uh, God's Word. There's a reason this Word speaks to us and there's value and importance in it for us for sure. I want to make sure we keep our eyes on where we've been and where we're going in our study of 1 Timothy. Last week's passage, the beginning of chapter 2, called everyone in the church to pray for those who are not believers and to share the gospel with them. Uh, I gave you a challenge last week to pray specifically in the coming week for those in your life by name that you know are not following Jesus, who don't trust in him for their salvation. I hope you're able to do that. And if you didn't, if it slipped your mind, guess what? This next week will be a great time to get caught up on that practice. I also encourage you to look for opportunities to have gospel conversations with people this past week. Did you do that? You might have forgotten about it. But the good news is you've got tomorrow and lots of people that you're going to be around. You've got great opportunities to share the gospel with someone or to talk about Jesus uh, with the people that are uh, in your orbit. So beginning of chapter 2. Paul has spoken to the whole church and called us to pray for people everywhere to come to faith in Christ and then for all of us to be active in sharing the gospel with those who are outside of the faith. But in this week's passage, following that, verses 1 through 7, now the end of chapter 8, or excuse me, the end of chapter 2, Paul turns his attention from speaking to everyone to speaking to men and women specifically. And why does he do this? I think it's because Paul recognizes that men and women face unique challenges when it comes to godly living. Now, certainly there's a lot of overlap. Uh, there's a lot of overlap in what it means to just be a Christian. Overlap in, for men and women. We, we believe and do the same things. We saw that again at the beginning of chapter 2. But there are some challenges that are unique for men, some challenges that are unique for women. And this is one of the passages, not the only one, but one of them, where Paul speaks to each group separately. So we've got to keep in mind the context of the letter for this passage to make sense. Ephesus is a church in chaos. You'll remember that false teachers are doing real damage to the precious people in the church by promoting this weird sort of legalism. It's not your regular, run-of-the-mill, pharisaical legalism. They take the Old Testament, they intertwine some myths and some storytelling. Something about genealogies is there. 
And the result is it is ripping the church apart. Timothy leads a church that's in utter chaos. And so Paul is writing to strengthen Timothy and to correct the church. So then, like we studied last week, Paul has called the church to the right kind of mission, praying for the lost, sharing the gospel with the lost. And now, in the passage we're studying today, he turns his attention to the godly behavior of Christian men and Christian women. It's the sort of behavior that advances the gospel of Jesus Christ. In other words, we look at chapter 2 from 30,000 feet. Paul is saying this to us. He's saying, if you're going to pray for unbelievers, and if you're going to share the gospel with unbelievers, then this is how you worship and live among unbelievers. So my purpose today with our passage is to shine a spotlight uh, on the kinds of lives Christian men and Christian women are to live. The focus of this passage is certainly on our behavior within the church. This is how we as a faith family live with each other and approach the Lord together. But it has major ramifications for the way we fulfill the mission God has given us. And so I want to answer this question in the passage today. What kind of people fill God's church? You come into South Shore Baptist Church, what kind of people should you find in here? I'm going to follow really closely to Paul's uh, format, his structure in this letter. And I want to show you some particular characteristics of Christian men and Christian women in the church. So follow along with me as I read 1 Timothy chapter 2. We're going to start in verse 8. Paul writes, I want men everywhere to lift up holy hands in prayer without anger or disputing. I also want women to dress modestly with decency and propriety, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. She must be silent. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. Let's pray together. Lord God, this is your word to us. And it's important for us. And so we need your help to make sense of it and to apply it to our lives that we would walk in holiness and that we would honor and glorify you. Uh, Father, um, may what I give today just be your word to be done so in humility, recognizing that you, God, the Holy Spirit, you are the one who is leading us into all truth. So bring us Uh, through our study today with love for each other and unity as we set our eyes on you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. Your first observation in this passage might be, hmm, men only get one verse, but women get seven verses. What's up with that? Paul seems to be a little obsessed with women. But just cool your jets for one moment. Uh, In another letter to the Ephesian church, the very same church, Ephesians chapter 5, Paul describes what it means to be a Christian wife in three verses. He describes what it means to be a Christian husband in nine verses. So Paul is an 
equal opportunity addresser of men and women. He, he, he's definitely not anti-woman, far from it. Uh, before we dive in in earnest, I want to give two disclaimers that I think will be important for us as we make sense of this passage. One, the reason this passage is, is a challenge is because from this we make conclusions about the roles of men and women in the church and in the home. So two disclaimers that might help us here. One is this, we may not agree at the end of our time together this morning, but we must not fight. I want you to remember what's happening in the church at Ephesus. These false teachers are tearing the church apart. The result is they are fighting each other. If we study Paul's grace-filled corrective words and then we come out on the other side fighting, we've just missed the point altogether. So I, I hope we'll have good agreement, but I don't expect that we will all agree on the way this passage is to be tra- or interpreted and applied in the life of the church and in our individual lives. But we don't have to agree 100% on this thing. But we must We must love each other. That's the goal. We can disagree at the end of this and still love each other and be united as a faith family. Second disclaimer is this. The issue of gender roles is not a first priority theological matter. The issue of gender roles is not a first priority theological matter. Not all matters of theology are equal in their importance. Some of those that are most important that we would call first priority matters are those theological things apart from which if we don't believe these things, we cannot even call ourselves Christian. For example, belief in a Trinitarian God, first priority, theological matter. Jesus Christ's substitutionary atonement, his death and his his physical death, his physical resurrection, first matter, first priority, theological matter. Gender roles is not on the same level as the Trinity. It's not on the same level as the atonement. It's what we might call a secondary theological matter. Other things that would equal secondary theological matters would be something like the way a church chooses to baptize. You can dunk them like we do. You can sprinkle them. You can pour water on them. You got options. Convictionally, There's a reason we're Baptists, because we believe that dunking is the biblical mode. And the fact that another church does not baptize the way we do, does not make them our enemy, does not put us at war with them, and it certainly does not forbid cooperation between us and them in kingdom matters. What happens all too often in this discussion on gender roles is we make enemies out of our brothers and sisters in the faith, and we've got to stop that garbage. This past week, it has been hot in... uh, the blogosphere and in social media, this discussion about gender roles in the church. And Christian people, good Christian people on both sides of the issues have gone to war with each other in ways that I think are terribly distasteful for the glory of God and the reputation of Jesus Christ in this church. We're not going to be that church. This is not a first priority theological matter. It is a second priority theological matter we can disagree and we will love each other and go to heaven together and let God tell us we were all wrong anyways okay so those are my disclaimers here's my question what kind of people fill God's church God's church is filled with these kinds of people first of all it's filled with men who pray if you're taking notes the church of Jesus Christ is to be filled with men 
who pray. Look at verse 8. Paul says, I want men everywhere to lift up holy hands without anger or disputing. Now, when Paul says, I want men to lift up holy hands in prayer, he's not addressing our posture as if he's concerned with what we do with our hands while we're in the praying moment. Rather, he's simply concerned with the fact that men should pray rather than fight. Saying, lift up holy hands is prayer, is the equivalent of a phrase we use. We'll say, let's lift our voices in worship. When we say, lift your voices in worship, we're not saying everyone kick it into alto as loud as you possibly can. We're just saying, let's worship, let's sing together. Paul is calling men in the church to pray. Does Paul's instruction mean that only men are permitted to pray in the gathered assembly? Well, the answer to that is no, of course not. Paul's concern is that there are men in the church who would prefer to fight each other rather than trust the Lord in prayer. So why then should men come together to pray? Why does Paul think this is so important that Christian men should be characterized by constant prayer together? There's two massive benefits to Christian men praying together often and quickly. One profound benefit is that when we pray together, we strengthen our relationships with each other. It's hard to hate someone you pray with. Hard to go before the God of our redemption and say, this is my opponent. You go before God and you say, this is my brother. Men don't protect the church by fighting each other, by arguing and bickering. Men protect the church and set an example by going to the Lord in prayer. It it improves our love for one another. Another benefit for our praying together is that when we pray, we are practicing and we are exemplifying trust in the Lord. We need men who faith God, who trust God. God. Prayer is the way in which we do that. Prayer is saying, I trust your way. I trust your plan. God, we don't know tomorrow. We're going to trust you with it. We need those kinds of men who trust the Lord explicitly in every facet of their living. Now, brother, you might be thinking to yourself, we got off easy today. (laughs) We just got to pray. All these other things are for the ladies. But do you pray? I mean, do you really pray? Do you pray with your brothers in the faith? Do you pray privately? Do you pray with your family? Do you pray as an act of confident reliance upon your heavenly father or do you pray just like you're tossing a wish up into the sky do you pray only when crisis hits or do you pray at all times not out of duty but for the privilege of communing with the lord christian men pray often at all times in all places with haste and urgency brothers pray what kind of people should we find in the church of jesus christ we should find men who pray. Second, we should find women adorned with good deeds. Women adorned or dressed 
in good deeds. Verses 9 and 10. So in verse 9, Paul turns his attention to Christian women. The remainder of the passage focuses on the godly behavior of Christian women in church life. And here in verses 9 and 10, he instructs women regarding their behavior in church. He starts by calling out two character traits that are contrary to the life of the Christian woman. Those two character traits are immodesty and materialism. Look at the first part of verse 9. Here he speaks against immodesty. He says, I also want women to dress modestly, with decency and propriety, not with braided hair. The second part of verse 9 speaks to materialism, or gold or pearls or expensive clothes. So rather than being immodest or materialistic, Paul directs Christian women towards a behavior that reflects Christ. Look at verse 10. He says women should be dressed with good deeds, appropriate for women who profess to worship God. I think one way we have historically, I say, I mean we in a generic sense, not in a South Shore specific sense, but generically a way in which the church has gotten this verse wrong is, is we've focused on what this verse takes away from women. So many churches have created entire legalistic systems over matters of dress and makeup, and they use verses like this to justify really strict dress codes. What's more, verses like this have also been improperly used to diagnose women as being innately promiscuous or vapid. But the focus of this verse is not on its limitations, but on its permissions. Sister, adorn yourself with good deeds. Dress yourself in holiness. Speak like Christ. Act like Christ. Love like Christ. Tell the story of Christ. These are the things that Christian women should be known for. Paul isn't just telling women to pluck the weeds. He's telling them, cultivate roses as you adorn yourself with the words and the deeds of Jesus Christ. So what counts as immodest? And what counts as materialistic? This is an area in which I do not have a word from the Lord. I have opinions, loads of them. But my opinions are not Scripture. I have four daughters. My opinions are not even agreed upon in my own house. I see no problem with me wearing a mesh tank top in public. But all of a sudden, that's immodest. Fine. Look, it's not easy being a Christian woman because you live by such a different set of values from the world around you. Our culture says that immodesty and materialism are actually symbols of success and power in a woman's life. And if you dare speak against that value system, you will be publicly destroyed. But this shouldn't come as a surprise to us. It's no surprise that the world and the church are at odds on this issue because this is the way it's always been. I want you to see what the Apostle John wrote in 1 John chapter 2, verse 16. He says, For everything in the world... The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. The lust of the flesh, immodesty. The lust of the eyes, materialism. The pride of life, the ego that puts me front and center. It comes not from the Father, but from the world. So sisters, 
you need to pray and seek the Lord's guidance and the wisdom of other trusted Christian women to help you understand what immodesty and materialism looks like. And what's more, sisters, I would urge you, seek the Lord and the counsel of trusted Christian women so that you know what good deeds look like as well. Our pursuit in verses 9 and 10 is not just, what do I got to take out of my closet? Where do I find an ankle-length denim skirt in my size? Where where do I flush my makeup? That's not the the concern is, how do I live and speak and act as a daughter of the high king in a world that values sin above all else? What kind of people should we find in the church? Men who pray. Women adorned in good deeds. Third, we should find women who study God's word. Verse 11, we should find women who study God's word. Verse 11, Paul writes, a woman should learn in quietness and full submission. When we read this verse, our first reaction might be to bristle at the words quietness and full submission. And the reason we would bristle at that is because of all the negative ways we have seen this applied and enforced onto the lives of women, especially in the church. We're all aware of people in churches who have mutilated the meaning of this verse and others like it, and in so doing have robbed women of value and dignity. So it's possible when we read verse 11 that we might lose the voice of Paul and instead we interject the voice of the one who has done violence against us. I'm sorry that you've got to fight that battle. I'm sorry that you have been hurt in such a way that when we read the life-giving word of God, instead we hear angry voices speaking back to us. So we've got to be clear on this matter that any denomination or church or pastor or man who has used this verse or the others like it to muzzle women or to hurt women has committed egregious sin against God and women and has completely mutilated the word of God. It is not acceptable. Churches are weird when it comes to things like this. They interpret it in all kinds of wonky ways. I'll give you one example. My in-laws are wonderful Christian people. Uh, My father-in-law has been in ministry his whole life, Um, an incredible, quiet, humble hero of the faith. Uh, A number of years ago, they moved to Atlanta, Georgia, and they joined a small uh, rural church. Uh, And as faithful church members, they went to their church's business meeting. This was my in-law's first time at the business meeting. The church did its business. They were debating some issue, going to vote on some issue. And my mother-in-law, who's very wise and has good insight on things, she spoke into the issue. As a member of the church, she spoke into the issue. And the business meeting concluded. And afterwards, someone came up to my mother-in-law and they said, Sue, I know you're new here and you may not realize this, but we don't allow women to speak in business meetings. And my mother-in-law said, (laughs) I like to think that those kinds of expressions of sinful stupidity are the places where Jesus today would flip over table and chase people out of his church with a whip. 
Because it is so unbiblical. The focus of verse 11 is not on quietness and full submission. The focus is on the word learn. If Paul is here today and we would ask Paul, Paul, look at all these women we have. What do we do with them all? Paul would say, they should learn. Teach them the gospel. Pour the word of God into them. Fill them with the word. Teach them to read, to understand, to know, to communicate. Women should learn. And what do you do with a woman who has learned the gospel, a woman who has been invested in with the word of God? What do you do with that woman? You unleash her on a dark world that has to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. A woman should learn. The church should teach her. The church should unleash her. The good deeds Sister, that you adorn yourself with in verse 10 come from the study of verse 11. So what do we do with the words quietness and full submission? Well, look, these words describe the posture of any serious disciple of Christ. We don't have to be afraid of them. If I'm going to learn, I need to let my teachers teach and I need to submit as a student to a teacher. Does this verse mean that women must submit to all men, every man? The answer to that is a big, fat no. In fact, in another letter to the Ephesian church, Ephesians chapter 5, again, verse 21, Paul calls all Christians to submit to each other out of reverence for Christ. I submit to him and her, and you submit to him and her, and we do it because we esteem Jesus high and holy. Submission to our brothers and sisters, deference to their needs is the steady state of Christ's church. And anyone who learns should do so quietly and in submission. What should a church do with all these women? Give them the word and put them to work in the ways that God has called and gifted them to do so. What kind of people fill the church? Men who pray, women adorned in good deeds, women who study God's word, Fourth, women who partner in the mission of the church. Women who partner in the mission of the church. Verse 12, this is the, this is the money verse. One of the most debated verses in all the Bible. I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. She must be silent. This is not an easy verse. And anyone from any perspective on gender roles, who says that they have this verse completely figured out is not being intellectually honest. Our tribe is not the only one that's got it right or can argue that we're the only ones that have it right. It's astounding the amount of Christian scholarship that has gone into this verse to make sense of it. And what you have are people who love the Lord and love his word and love his church and love his gospel and they cannot find agreement on verse 12. And so we've got to be humble here. Now our church, convictionally, we have a position on this, but we must approach that humbly so as not to vilify brothers and sisters who genuinely love the Lord but disagree with our convictional stance on it. They are not latent 
third wave feminists. They are not liberals on a slippery slope. They're just people that land at a different place on this verse than we do. So I think it's a wonderful thing when the Bible messes with us. When we are utterly dependent on the Holy Spirit to lead us into truth. And that's where we are a lot more often than we might realize with all of the word and especially with a passage like this one. The phrase that we're wrestling with is the phrase teach or have authority. I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority. What exactly is Paul prohibiting there? I want to give you three options. Only one of them is right. Just kidding. Uh, Only one of them is where we land. (laughs) But I want to give you uh, a couple of different perspectives along with uh, where we land today as well. So one option for understanding verse 12, number one, would say this, that women are prohibited from teaching and leading men, period. A woman cannot teach a man in any setting at any time, uh, and nor can a woman uh, have a position of leadership or authority over a man, no, of any kind, within church life, within church life, okay? Um, There are people who love the Lord and love his church and love the gospel who hold to position number one. And they're not monsters, and they don't hate women, and they're not misogynists. But they're working hard to align the Word of God with the way the church practices. And so they would say women are made in the image of God. Men and women made in the image of God equal in value and dignity before the Lord. This is not because men are better. It's just the way we make sense of verse 12. That's one option. Another option is the other end of the spectrum. It would say there's no prohibition on women in verse 12. That what Paul's addressing here is a very particular cultural issue. If he's prohibiting anything, what he's prohibiting are women who are false teachers in the church usurping authority and teaching garbage, ungospel nonsense to the church. Those women should never be given a platform to teach or have authority. We can all agree with that. That's true not just of women but of men also who would usurp authority and use it for nefarious purposes. So we can all be on board with that. But those who hold to verse 2, they or position 2, they are, again, they're in love with the Lord. They can be full of the gospel, uh, concerned for the church, and their stance comes down to, well, Okay, what's consistent in Paul? We see consistently in Paul that he elevates women, uses them in, uh, in his ministry in profound ways. And what do we see in the life and teaching of Jesus? We see Jesus elevating women. Women have a place of honor and privilege around Jesus. There's solid convincing arguments there. Option three is where South Shore Baptist Church lands. Uh, women are prohibited from authoritative teaching that an elder is called to do. The words in verse 12, teaching and authority, are linked grammatically so that they influence one another. And the result is that Paul's not speaking of two things, teaching in a silo and authority in a silo. These are influencing each other. He's speaking of one thing. It's authoritative teaching. It's that teaching that comes with a position of authority. In our church life, that authoritative teaching teaching is the elder-led preaching to the gathered church family, this moment right here. Now, next week, 
in chapter 3, we're going to study what Paul says about the qualifications of an elder. And one of the qualifications is Paul holds that office as available to qualified men. And so what we find in chapter 2, verse 12, and what we find in chapter 3 is consistent. The office is reserved for qualified men. And so this preaching moment, this preaching role is also reserved for qualified men. Let's ask a few questions. Does this mean that only men can preach? No. It means only qualified men can preach. In this moment, in the church assembled in this way, only qualified men can preach. That's how South Shore Baptist Church understands this passage. Does this mean that only men can serve as authorities in the church? No. It means that only qualified men will serve as elders. This verse does not restrict women from other areas of leadership or service in the church. Does this verse mean that women have to be silent in the church? I mean, that's what it says. She can't teach or have authority. She must remain silent. Again, the answer is no. The Greek word translated silent in the translation I've read, so this is an older NIV that Greek word that's translated silent in verse 12 is the same Greek word that's translated quiet in verse 11. So if you have a newer NIV, if you have an ESV, if you have a Christian Standard Bible translation, then your verse 12 says the word quiet rather than silent. So Paul's not putting a gag order on women whenever they walk through the doors of the church. He's simply describing, again, the posture of a student or a disciple. Cody, does this mean that you believe men are innately better leaders, better preachers, better pastors? Not a chance. The Bible does not teach that. The Bible does not teach that my gender gives me an advantage over a woman when it comes to the study of God's word or leading his church or preaching. There are many women would do a better job at every aspect of my job than me. So if men do not have a biological advantage, why then should the church be structured this way? Well, Paul supports his statement in verses 13 and 14. Look at it with me. Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. Adam was formed first. Paul appeals to God's order of creation. He says that in the order of creation, with Adam being formed first, we have this concept of male headship. Now, male headship does not mean male supremacy or male dominance. Male headship means that Adam is to be a self-sacrificing servant leader to Eve. He is not her Lord. He is not her dictator. He is a self-sacrificing servant leader. That's male headship. Paul's point is that the male headship we find in creation is to be reflected in the church. As in the garden, so in the church. And in verse 14, Paul supports his argument further by pointing to the fall. He says, verse 14, Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. Paul's point here is that when God's order is disrupted, then problems follow. 
Does that mean that if a woman is a pastor, she'll naturally lead the church towards sin and ruin? And the answer is no, that's not what this means. Plenty of male pastors have proven more than capable of destroying the Lord's church for the same reason. That reason is this. When we abdicate God's divine created order for his church, we open ourselves to problems. There's consequences that can follow. The church is to be led by self-sacrificial servant leaders. So real quick to recap, what's Paul prohibit? What does he prohibit in verse 12? He prohibits women from the authoritative teaching to the gathered church. Why? Because God's created order places men in the role of self-sacrificing servant leaders. The mistake we often make here is we become hyper-focused on verse 12 when it comes to understanding gender roles in the home and in the church. But I don't believe it's Paul's intent to say everything that needs to be said about the roles of men and women in the church in verse 12. Our understanding of what the Christian home and the Christian church looks like comes from all of Scripture. Now, what Paul says in verse 12 is important and is consistent with what the rest of Scripture gives us in this regard. It's not contradicted anywhere else. It's not something we can just throw away. But it's not everything. So let's stay in Genesis for just a moment longer in order to get a more well-rounded view of things. Creation teaches us that Adam is incomplete without Eve. He's surrounded by paradise and he has work to do. Name the animals. And every time he names an animal, what is accentuated in the naming is how different they are from him. At the end of the work, at the end of the naming, guess what? Adam is alone, and God says, this is not good. So the Lord causes a deep sleep to fall on Adam, takes his rib, forms woman. And when Adam sees Eve for the first time, do you remember what he said? Look, someone who's so different from me, utterly distinguished from me, who is subservient to me and who can make my sandwiches. Is that what he said? No, that's... That's not what he said. Uh, Adam said, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. He rejoiced in their sameness. Creation starts with sameness between men and women. No doubt there's distinction. At the most basic level of gender, there is male, there is female. They are distinct and different. This is true. But the headline of creation is sameness. Without Eve, Adam is a half man. Without the woman, creation was incomplete. God's mission couldn't be fulfilled without her. I heard a speaker say just this week, take note of this, that when God saw that Adam was alone and it was not good, he did not create for him an elder board. He made him a woman. He made for Adam a necessary ally. Without her, Adam could not do what God wanted to be done. As in the garden, so in the church. The mission of the church does not succeed without men and women partnering together for the sake of the gospel. 
That's why when I look at verse 12 in the full scope of the biblical instruction on roles of men and women in the church, I call women partners in the ministry. To be sure, there is a restriction in verse 12. I'm not trying to gloss over that at all. Paul gives us this boundary and says this office, this role, chapter 3, is reserved for qualified men. Chapter 2, they've got this teaching role to perform when the church gathers and the word is given. That's an elder's role, an elder's task. But the church flourishes as she follows the word of God in this regard. I think we make a big mistake with verse 12 if we take it and only pull from it those things women can't do. If our interpretation of verse 12 does not advance the Great Commission through the faithful partnership of men and women together under humble, self-sacrificing, servant leadership of elders in the church, then we miss the point of verse 12 entirely. It's not a handcuff. It's a launching pad. God's designed the church to be led by elders who are self-sacrificing servant leaders and men and women partnering together for the sake of the advancement of the kingdom and glory of God. We're almost there. Church of Jesus Christ filled with men who pray, women adorned in good deeds, women who study God's word, women who are partners in the mission of the church, fifth and finally, women who flourish in their salvation. Verse 15, Paul says, women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. Is this verse saying that women must marry and bear children in order to live a godly life? Of course not. Look, the church in Ephesus would have had single women or those who, for whatever reason, were unable to have children. So Paul wouldn't put such an ungospel requirement on women in the church. I want you to remember that Paul's addressing dysfunction in the church that's created by false teachers. If you were to skip ahead to chapter 4, verse 3, you'll find that one component of that false teaching is that people should not marry. And if you don't get married, you're not having babies. So Paul's point is that in general, bearing and bringing up children, far from being against God's will, as the false teachers were saying, is actually a normal and godly way for a Christian woman to live. So don't feel like, sister, don't feel like you've got to skip verse 15 because it's some hardship against you or some condemnation of you. Not at all. But Paul is telling you that whatever situation you find yourself in, single or married, kids or no kids, working in the home or working out of the home, hold fast to your faith in Jesus, your love for him and others, and your pursuit of holiness with propriety. That's the question for all of us. The question for all of us is, what would you say are the evidences of salvation in your life? In verse 15, the evidences of salvation is not childbearing, it's faith, love, holiness with propriety. Look, salvation is given to those who trust in Jesus Christ. We can't trust in ourselves because we're wicked sinners. We've got to trust in Jesus. He's the eternal God, born of a virgin, lived among us, He's the unique and only Savior of mankind because He is God the Son. He died on the cross in your place for your sin. Three days later, He rose from the dead. And His promise is that everyone who trusts in Him will be forgiven of their sin and given eternal life. 
chapter 2, verses 8 through 15 is not a self-help manual. It is not a church order manual. It is the manifestation of the gospel of Jesus Christ in the lives of men and women in the church. It's hope. It's beauty. It's God's grace to us. When our faith is in Christ, from that point forward, we're to continue, as Paul says, in faith, love, holiness with propriety. We've covered a lot of ground today. And I'm proud of you for hanging with me. Drinking from the fire hydrant, I know. So let's just real quick recap where we've been. What kind of people should we find in Christ's church? We should find men who pray. Should women pray also? Absolutely. But brothers, let us be men who are known for praying. We're going to find women who dress in good deeds, are equipped with the gospel, partners in the mission of the church, and who flourish in their salvation. It is hard to be a Christian man. It's challenging to be a Christian woman, but we have a Savior who loves us and graciously helps us to follow him through every challenge. And with our Savior's help, we will be a church filled with men and women who together make disciples of all nations. Let's pray together. Father, I'm grateful for this group of people who take your words so serious. And uh, it strengthened me these last few weeks getting ready for this morning, knowing that I would be uh, working this passage with brothers and sisters who love your word and who love you and who want to hear from you and follow you. And brothers and sisters who in maturity recognize that we're, we're not all going to agree, but we've got to go to your word and, and we've got to respond accordingly. So, Father, thank you for the people that I get to worship with today. And I'm grateful for the way your word calls us to live. Lord God, raise up Christian men in this church more who will be known by and defined by their their praying, that they would pray as an act of trust and faith, that they would pray in order to increase their love for one another. Lord God, don't give us macho men. Give us praying men. Father God, thank you for our sisters in this church. Uh, I, I cannot think of those who have taught me your word and your ways without thinking about unbelievable women. And I'm grateful for their influence in my life. And with that, Lord God, I, I can't think of the formation of my faith without thinking of the men who have been my pastors and who humbly showed me what it meant to study your word, and to live it. Thank you for all the men and women in your church who influence our lives in such beautiful and perfect ways. This is by your design, and we praise you for it. Lord God, would you be gentle with my sisters in here who have endured violence and hardship especially at the hands of those in the church that have used these verses to do damage. May our sisters find safety and comfort and vibrancy in this church family as we walk in your word. And Lord God, let there be no mistake that when the watching world looks on us, that they find we are a church men who pray 
and women who are vibrant in their faith as together we fulfill the great commission to your glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.